0: good morning oregon i'm finn jd john fj at offbeatoregon.com and this is the daily offbeat oregon history podcast it's thursday so this is an archive show first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy our show. This story was first published on June 16th of 2013 under the headline, The Hunt for D.B. Cooper, Searching for the Drop Zone. It's part three in a four-part series on the D.B. Cooper mystery. Here we go. Thanksgiving Day 1971 was a very unusual one for FBI agent Ralph Himmelsbach. He spent it flying a grid pattern over southwest Washington in his tailor craft, staring at the ground. Himmelsbach was trying to spot a parachute canopy down there, a parachute that would mark the landing spot of the man who'd hijacked Northwest Orient Flight 305 the previous evening. It was the beginning of the hunt for D.B. Cooper a hunt that still continues to this day. Investigators were already starting to zero in on the most likely spot for Cooper's jump. A strange change in cabin pressure in the plane was reported at 8.13 p.m., and the working theory was that this was caused by Cooper jumping off the back stairs. Investigators later confirmed this by having U.S. Marines drop a 220-pound weight off the back stairs of a 727 in flight a job that has to have tested the nerves even of U.S. Marines. Based on the prevailing wind direction and the location of the plane at the moment, they came up with a diamond-shaped area in which Cooper probably landed. So the next day, the search began in earnest. Law enforcement agencies, search and rescue units, and county sheriff's mounted posses collected at Woodland Police Station and launched a grid search of the target area. A few days later, the searchers were joined by 400 soldiers from nearby Fort Lewis. But even so, they were probably a small minority of the people actually on the ground looking for Cooper. Remember, this was Thanksgiving weekend. Virtually everyone in Oregon and Washington had the weekend off from work, and by the day after Thanksgiving, thousands of locals knew exactly where authorities thought Cooper had landed. This news seemed to inspire a sudden mania for outdoor recreation. After all, chances seemed pretty good that Cooper had died in the attempt, which would mean that somewhere in the hills of southwest Washington there was a monster bag of cash just lying there tied to a corpse up for grabs. Quote, no one readily admitted to be looking for the ransom money, Himmelsbach later wrote, but many 1971-style gold rushers were tempted by the lure of a 21-pound package of $20 bills lying somewhere out there in the wilds and were undaunted by the long odds. Time went by. The gold rushers gave up and went home. The soldiers spent 18 days on their grid search through some of the most rugged country in the West in November and December, of course, bivouacking each night in the field so they could pick it up again the next day. They found the body of a hiker who had broken his leg and died. And other researchers found the body of a murder victim, a college girl who disappeared a couple weeks before while hitchhiking. But if Cooper or his parachute or the money, nothing. They never figured out who murdered the college girl, either. There were a couple of red-hot leads that seemed to dissolve like a mirage upon first contact, a report of a big white thing floating in Lake Merwin that subsequently vanished, and a mysterious small aircraft taking off and landing by the light of someone's car headlights near the drop zone. Nothing came of either one. Almost immediately, people started calling the FBI with tips. Some of these were people who noticed neighbors suddenly spending lots of money, Others were clearly just trying to make trouble for their personal enemies by reporting them. Investigators tried to check out each lead, but found themselves soon inundated. And it got worse. Within a month or two, the volume of tips coming into the FBI had gone up. The quality had gone down. The legend of the cool cat suit-jacketed Skyjacker had fully blossomed, and many people were starting to think of him as a sort of folk hero, sticking it to the man and getting away with it. People were writing songs, making t-shirts. Every half-drunk high roller flashing a roll of 20s at the local bar seemed to think it would be hilarious to pretend to be D.B. Cooper, and then somebody at the bar would call the cops from a payphone, and then Himmelsbach would get a call at 2 a.m., and it happened again and again. Typed-out letters signed D.B. Cooper started showing up at newspapers' offices, and there may actually have been several different people writing them. In any case, they didn't lead anywhere either. And then there were the funny ones, the tips called in by the self-described psychics and paranormal investigators, and by straight-up nutters and swindlers. Himmelsbach remembers one who built a black box covered with dials and switches, which he claimed functioned as a sort of mechanical bloodhound quite what the advantage was in a bloodhound with no legs, and as soon became obvious a non-functioning nose, was never made clear. Another got Himmelsbach's attention by claiming to be skilled in water witching, but subsequently rang the loony bell good and loud by revealing that he did his water witch dousing over a topo map on his coffee table before going out to the scene to dig. The soldiers and posses came back in the spring for another go, and again found nothing. Other searchers got involved as well. A man named John Banks, convinced that Cooper landed and drowned in Lake Merwin, made a deal with the insurance company and spent two years and $15,000 exploring the bottom of the lake in a little submarine. He, too, found nothing. Then one day, late in the 1970s, Himmelsbach was talking about the case to an airline pilot who said he'd been in the air just behind the hijacked aircraft that night. The pilot chanced to remark on how nasty the weather was with an 80-knot wind coming right out of the south. The south. Not the west-southwest, but the south. The news hit Himmelsbach like a rock. If it was true, that meant the FBI and its friends had spent the previous eight years meticulously searching the wrong place. But then, if the wind had shifted that way, wouldn't the pilots of Flight 305 have noticed as well? Investigators were left wondering what to think. Then, in 1980, a third-grade boy named Brian Ingram, digging a flat spot for a campfire by the Columbia River on a beach known as Tina Bar, stumbled across $5,800 in water-worn $20 bills, which were immediately confirmed as the bills from the skyjacking. The cache was bound together with rotting rubber bands, and the corners were rounded off as if they'd been tumbling in the water for some time. But they were found upstream from the jet's flight path and upwind from where Cooper apparently jumped. How could they have gotten there? If dropped into the river, why didn't they get separated? Did someone stash them there? Who knows? So that's what we're left with. A tantalizing smattering of confusing and sometimes contradictory evidence just enough to keep the intrepid D.B. Cooper sleuths busy for decades trying to solve this case. So, okay, what really happened to D.B. Cooper that night? There are at least five thoroughly thought-out, highly plausible theories. There are another dozen or so that, although not as robust, are highly appealing as stories. For the time being, though, the question is one big mystery. But then, there are those of us who kind of like it that way. Next week's column will take a look at some of the most plausible theories about what happened to Cooper and the money. That'll be the last in our four-part series on D.B. Cooper key sources in this story have included works by Ralph Himmelsbach, Jeffrey Gray, Skip Porteous, and Robert Blevins. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 550 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulplit Productions, pulp-lit.com, a boutique publishing house owned and operated by Yours Truly, specializing in audiobook and multimedia editions of the work of the classic pre-war pulp writers. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license type CC BY-SA 4.0, which basically means you can do anything with the content you like, so long as you A give me credit for it and B Whatever you make is also released under a Creative Commons license. But if you need a waiver to either A or B, hit me up, fj at I've never said no yet to a request for a waiver of one of those conditions. They're generally there just to prevent me from accidentally authorizing the reuse of something I don't actually control the rights to. A good example might be a photograph used by special permission of the rights holder. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Fakara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatorgan.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every single weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now.